Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Apuhoff. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper on Thursday. Oh, Sunday. Sunday. <laughs> We're thinking about Thursday. Yeah. Sunday, November 24th. 2019. And uh, it's a gloomy, gloomy day here. Oh, rainy. In Limeport. Awful. Awful. Rainy and dark. Perfect day for doing yoga and watching football. Right. Uh, unless you're a giant fan. So, uh, let's just get right to it. Uh, we uh, went to the movies. Yes. We did. I took Mrs. Granger out to the movies. The movies. We zoomed. The motion the pictures. That's we correct. Zoomed to the we zoomed to the movies. We zoomed to the Because we were going to go see Ford, Ford versus Ferrari. Yes. So, Dan told me he was getting me in the mood. Right. By driving like a maniac. He did. And, uh, and were you in the mood? I was in the mood. Yeah. And uh, fortunately... We got there in time to miss all the coming attractions. Perfect timing, perfect timing. Which were tedious last time we went. Yeah, it was one of these theaters with, uh, you know, the assigned seats and uh, the very comfortable uh, electronic uh, gizmos that uh, set you up in a very comfortable position. It was all good. Yeah. It was, it was very good. And then we strapped on our seatbelts and we sat to watch Ford versus Ferrari, which uh, I enjoyed. Ford versus Ferrari, just to sort of set the stage, is the story of Ford... Uh, decided to enter the world of international racing, car racing, uh, and challenging the Italian masters at Ferrari at the track of Le Mans, the biggest event at that time, and perhaps it's still the biggest event. Uh, and it stars um, Matt Damon as uh, Carol Shelby, who was a car designer, a previous race car driver, uh, and uh, Christian Bale as a fellow named Ken Miles, who was the uh, driver, uh, and the two of them were the force behind making this challenge by the Americans against Ferrari. Both in terms of designing, you know, the ultimate vehicle, mm -hmm. and uh, for Ken Myers, driving it, having the ability, the nerve to really yeah. drive it. Well, listen, I thought it was a real good movie. It's a very exciting adventure picture. I know that Zeke was somewhat dismissive. They called it a sports movie, but I think it's more than a sports movie. But even at a sports movie level, it's extremely well done, didn't you think? Yes, yes. I, I enjoyed it. I also think it's one of those movies you might want to see on the big screen. Which we did. Uh, because the uh, driving sequences, you know, the racing, mm -hmm. is quite impressive. It was and, uh, even more exciting than the ride there. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine it would be uh, that as exciting on, yeah. on your phone. Yes. I mean, look, let's, let's just lay a few rules down here. Number one is we are not car enthusiasts. Right, so it's not like we're uh, part of the uh, demographic for this film necessarily. Although, we both decided as soon as we saw the picture, who should see this movie? My brothers. <laughs> uh, my brothers are car enthusiasts. It's a shout out to them. Car experts. They must see this movie. Anybody who's a car nut has got to see Which this is film. A hard nut to crack because they don't go to the movies. Well, they're going to have to go to this one. Yeah. Uh, but the the you know the car racing was gripping. Uh, the characters were interesting. Yeah. Uh, they were funny. It was compelling. The story was real. And the story, uh, you know, it is an interesting backstory because it's true. There's, now we know because the Times tells us today that, in fact, the story is true. It was jazzed up a little. A little bit, but basically true. That basically what happened was that uh, there was almost a transaction by which Ford acquired Ferrari. Which was the, Ford the, was trying to acquire right, and and Ferrari. Ferrari, the very classy auto manufacturer, which makes vintage automobiles and wonderful cars, which wins these big races, 
Uh, the transaction failed. There was bare blood, bad blood. Henry Ford II, the head of Ford, decided that he was going to respond by entering into this international car racing in a big way and show Ferrari what's what. And in part, driven not just by personal ego, which was substantial, but also by his faith in what we'll call American capitalism. The idea that uh, Ford was the manufacturer of all these munitions in World War II. They were a force in the world economy, and there's no reason that that force should not also prevail on the track at Le Mans. And he goes to hire whoever he needs to win this race, and it's these two characters we talked about a moment ago who are naturally mavericks who exist best outside the system. So there's a natural tension uh, between uh, the folks who are actually going to win the race or compete in the race on the one hand and the big uh, behemoth that is Ford Motor Company. Right. I don't think Elizabeth Warren is going to this movie. No. Or if she is, she's not going to enjoy it. No, it's not. Because it does celebrate American capitalism in a way, even as it shows all the foibles of Ford. You know, there was a previous movie called Le Mans starring Steve McQueen, uh, James Garner also, which was a pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came out a different way. But, you know, there are... Uh, and there was a lot of car racing in that. McQueen was a big uh, car enthusiast. But, you know, look, this is not Best Picture. This is not... Uh, how shall we say the English patient or uh, a lot of other <laughs> movies patient. you know it's not a subtle film okay but uh, it's exciting it was exciting and you know I mean if my brothers would just see it I mean they would enjoy it. there's a lot of you know there's a fair amount of what seemed to be technical talk about what if we do this what if we do it that it seemed awfully technical the entire movie very I mean, technical to us and but, then, you know so uh, I think it can appeal to a pretty broad audience they bring in some human interest. They invent some human interest. Right, they do. But it's all wound very tightly around the car competition. And uh, also, I should note to Armand, uh, our favorite bartender, I know was thinking of seeing the movie, that this was the uh, first time the Americans, and the only time, frankly, the Americans were able to prevail at Le Mans. That's what the story's about. But the Italians had won previously every time except for one. The time they lost, one of the drivers was Carroll Shelby. That was his link to the past. Uh, and he drove in that race in Aston Martin. So uh, for those lovers of Aston Martins, go to the film. I thought they said at the end of the film that uh, Ford's won in, in, right. the Le Mans right. the next four yeah. years. I should, I should let me be clarified. Other, well, but that was still under Shelby. So uh, except for Shelby's regime here for three or four races, okay. uh, they never got back into, it, into the winner's circle. Uh, so that's definitely Ford worth... Ford versus Ferrari. That's right. We recommend it. Yeah. Uh, and we were both struck uh, this week by an article in the Wall Street Journal about movie musicals. We kind well, of like... first of all, just let me say, yeah. Wall Street Journal this weekend yeah. had their usual um, cavalcade of subjects, su- suggestions right. of what to buy people for Christmas, possible right. Christmas gifts. Yes. None of them made any remote sense to me whatsoever yeah. as something you might want or might want to give or be able to afford <laughs> right. well, yes. to give to anyone. But they have a big section on holiday books and there are a lot of worthy contenders as gift items. Yeah. So if you know anyone who's interested in movie musicals, yes. this is and, the book. and not that there's anybody in this room right now, this would be the thing to get well, of them. Of course, where is it? But maybe some other people are too. Yeah, Wall Street Journal is the home of the seven hundred dollars sweater. It's uh, there's no question about it. But yeah, so what you you it's like been this too? A long too. time since they had a sweater that cheap in their yeah, uh, right. articles. Anyway, it, a book by Janine Basinger, B A S I N G E R, the movie musical exclamation point, 
And uh, it just sounds like a really fun book. The review is by Joseph Epstein, and uh, he starts out the review by regaling us with uh, the good old days when all kids went to the movies every Saturday afternoon right. and uh, saw all kinds of stuff, including movie musicals. And uh, so she uh, really traces the whole history of movie musicals. And it uh, seems like a pretty witty, enjoyable book. Uh, in, in addition to explaining all that mysterious stuff about why don't movie musicals seem to work anymore, uh, et, et cetera. And uh, so what she does say is movie musical work basically worked as long as there was the studio system. Yeah. And once that falls apart, uh, nobody has the financial wherewithal or the control over the superstars to, uh, you know, manufacture those kind of, you know, blockbuster busters. So, uh, so that's one thing. Uh, and she, you know, she traces a lot about, uh, the history of, uh, movies in general and, uh, and uh, at one point, she's talking about um, the uh, the different pairs mm-hmm. that are in movie musicals and that make them work. But she starts out by saying, in non-musical movies, there were bankable screen couples, Myrna Loy <laughs> and William Powell. Yeah, I know. What yeah. You're yeah. Um, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, Cary Grant and whatever woman happened to be in the house. <laughs> Well, that's true. <laughs> um, so uh, musical pairs were harder to come by. Of course, the real gold mine. But once they were, they were a huge gold right. mine. And of course, the big gold mine was Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Right. Uh, he brought class. She brought sex. Right. Uh, and uh, it uh, all worked. Um, she she goes on to you know talk about some other stars who don't quite hit it. Uh, on the big screen, including, um, who did you mention? Uh, Ethel Merman and uh, Mary Martin. Right. Apparently don't quite work on screen. Um, and uh, some other biggies. He talks a little bit about people who do make it, like uh, Julie Andrews, um, who uh, could, uh, as her friend Carol Burnett said, sing Spoonful of Sugar and You Don't Get Diabetes. Yeah. Uh, but then she kind of excoriates poor uh, Barbara Streisand yeah. uh, and says that uh, Streisand does a song as if it's a Shakespearean soliloquy. She's just got to be the one to interpret it for eternity. Right. Well, that's, that's exactly true. how I feel that about is true. Babs. Well, uh, she also identifies the definitive... Uh, female singer for musicals, which of course is Judy Garland. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, it's kind of hard hard to argue with that, right? Uh, uh, and uh, she also mentions uh, her um, partner Mickey Rooney, yes. who had talent to burn, and, and he burned, burned it. it. Yes, I saw that. Yeah. I was wondering about what that meant, but I'm not sure. But uh, it was a mixed blessing. Let's leave it at that. Um, yeah, let me uh, she, she talks about uh, uh, Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire and, uh, you know, um, about how uh, people differ in their opinions. A woman may give her heart to Astaire, but she'll give her body to Kelly. Yeah, but I thought also she said something about Kelly in the next line that said Kelly, at the end of the day, was doing uh, was a soloist. 
emotionally a soloist. And I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, he was uh, terribly self-possessed I uh, and in his own world. You know, one other thing that she touched him on, I thought it was interesting. She just got at it a little bit, was that, um, uh, you know, she asked the question, why are people even interested in musicals, movie musicals or otherwise? And she said, you know, look, I mean, throughout the country, there's the New York thing where people are, you know, used to seeing shows. But outside New York, people thought of uh, musicals as culture, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and they had a certain appeal. And then she talks about, you know, hard-bitten like union bosses, you know, the toughest guys in the world sitting down and having the opportunity to watch a musical like Pajama Game or something or enjoying it because uh, it, it was just con- – people loved it. People – sort of experienced it in a particular way. I mean, the way she puts it here, let me see if I can find it. Yes, here it goes. The movie musical exists in a second layer of reality, a layer constructed for us out of experience we don't have, can't have, or aren't having. Musical characters are living in a world of musical performance, and the viewer is transported from a real world to that world. Right. And she does that to underscore the point that a lot of the modern movie musicals don't work because they're taking the world too seriously. They're right. trying to make too much of a political point or whatever, yeah. and uh, they don't allow that kind of fantasy. So anyway, that sounds like a fun book, the movie Musical. Yes, and you had another book there. Uh, yeah, and then I was reading on, and you know, here's a book that actually doesn't get that great a review, yeah. but it, it brings up some interesting ideas. And it's called The Golden Thread right. by Cassia St. Clair. And what it is, it's a history of textiles. Right. Okay. Turns out textiles uh, really um, are key to our lives, an essential element in our lives. Of course, clothing, etc. Right. But they haven't always been taken that seriously in historically. Um, especially as works of art. Mm-hmm. Now, in some cultures, textiles are more revered, but in the Western culture, textiles have always been, you know, like second level, not fine art, mm-hmm. um, which uh, kind of the minor arts, which because many women are textile artists, okay, always put them as kind of second class citizens, as artists. Um, so that's kind of interesting. We happen to know uh, a fair uh, number of textile artists, whether you realize it I, I do. or not. I yeah, do. yeah. I'm um, on to that. Um, so um, uh, Pat Klein yeah, I, uh, and uh, uh, even Cindy Gompert is, uh, you know. Uh, those are the two names that came to well, mind. Well, conservationist yeah, of uh, right. textile art. Anyway, so um, there's a lot that's interesting in this book, even though the reviewer, Judith Flanders, um, whose books I've actually read before, she does uh, things like Inside the Victorian Home, uh, she's not thrilled with this book, but uh, she says there's a long way to go. We need to know more about textiles. You know, um, for example, when Howard Carter uh, uh, unearths the... um, treasures of uh, King Tut's tomb, okay? And he comes upon one big casket that is entirely filled with linens, okay? Which obviously must have been important, right? They're buried, buried in the Pharaoh's tomb. He's disgusted. He's disappointed. And in fact, many of the um, textiles that were in these tombs were just topped, tossed away 
as filler. Hmm. And probably had important stories to tell. Uh, it turns out the Vikings were pretty involved in wool. Okay, they made these amazing well, it's cold. sails. It was no, cold. it's it's all about the sails. All it right. took. Uh, um, they say it took about uh, I don't know, like a week to make a a longboat, a Viking longboat, could be built by two people in a fortnight. It took more than a year. Uh, for those same two people to weave a sail. Um, and it's because wool is so important to their economy, that's one of the reasons they're off on these raids. They have wool and sails? Yes. Okay. Wool is an amazing uh, All right, material. But to have more wool, yeah. you need more sheep, you need more land. Yeah. And so that's why they're venturing forth uh, to achieve these things. Anyway, it, it brings up a lot of interesting issues uh, so if you're interested in the history of textiles, try the Golden Thread, Cassia St. Clair. Uh, maybe you'll get more out of it than Ms. Flanders. All right. Well, uh, you know, I was thinking, though, we were watching uh, Ford versus Ferrari and even thinking about the movie musicals. Um, but those movies, you know, it's almost surprising that Ford Ferrari got made. And with the movie musicals being made today, and here's what I'm getting at there. We've talked previously about Scorsese complaining, Martin Scorsese complaining about the Marvel movies taking over. No screens for anything else. And uh, and, and, and that's become sort of uh, a debate, and there's still a lot of us in the Times about this, is Scorsese being elitist, is Marvel, are Marvel movies worthy entertainment? But what another way to look at it is there's just huge blockbuster films. And what really is going to get squeezed out, if anything gets squeezed out, is what I'll call the mid-level films. And not not Scorsese. Scorsese might be in a separate category. But the, but the kind of ca- movie which is not meant to have a zillion dollars in sales, which didn't take a zillion dollars to make, which is not quite the spectacle, uh, but not expected to have a huge impact and therefore the guaranteed opening box office. But it's still an interesting film, a smaller film. I think Ford versus Ferrari, probably there were questions about whether that was going to make it, but they had the two stars. They had Christian Bale and they had Matt Damon. So is that a mid-level film? Yeah, to me it's a mid-level film. Okay. And it's interesting, it's made by James Mangold, who's a director, and what has he done in the past? He's done Marvel films. He did Logan, mm-hmm. uh, right? About Wolverine. So, um, but that's a, that's a marginal woman. They made it. I think they're going to be happy. But uh, the fact of the matter is, these, these movie musicals would be a perfect example. What a hard sell that would be today to get someone to do a movie musical uh, that has no guaranteed blockbuster appeal. I don't know. I, but, that, but that's why the small screen is the perfect venue right. for th- things like that. And maybe it is. But maybe it is. But, you know, here here's a real-life situation. So you have, you know, we don't have to talk about Disney and, and Marvel making the huge movies. We know what they're doing. But so Warner Brothers, real-life example. Warner Brothers puts out seven movies, okay, that are what we'll call mid-level films because they're taking a different approach. And here's how it goes. All right. They've got The Good Liar, they've got Motherless Brooklyn, and they have Blinded by the Light, which is the, uh, well, it's a movie that relates to Springsteen, all of which are reasonably well-reviewed. They also have The Goldfinch, Shaft, and The Kitchen, all of which are poorly reviewed and are considered kind of poor movies. So they're a mix, but there's always going to be a mix. How do those do? They do badly. They, it, it, all you know, of them? Not all of them. Some do better than others. But if you look at those six movies and you say, we made six mid-level movies, What's the return on the six movies? It's not worth it. It's not good. I can give you the numbers, but it's not good. It's not right. going to cover their cost, right. except they made a seventh. And the seventh middle-level movie they made was Joker. And Joker 
was a wasn't a huge blockbuster. It cost you know in the neighborhood of uh, 50 sixty mil- million. Sixty million dollars. It's made over a billion. Yeah, it cost fifty five million. It's the hugest you know profitable of all time. They just got lucky. So one mid level movie hits, but what's the mid level movie that hits? It's the comic book movie. So what does Warner Brothers learn from this? Um, I don't think they're making Motherless Brooklyn next year or anything like it. I think they're looking for the next Joker. As a matter of fact, there's a film Joker 2, which is now being written. Right. So uh, well, that's too bad. That's the way the movie uh, business is going. Uh, but you're right. It's just economics. Nothing, not necessarily uh, a tragedy. So real estate. Yes, real estate. I, I leave the real, real estate to you. Real estate is kind of an interesting subject. Yeah. It's going through sort of like a huge transition. Right. Because... People don't want to buy houses anymore. But we're not going to talk about that today. Right. Okay. We're going to talk about preservation. Right. And a great article in the New York Times, Retail Palace Gets a Facelift, a Historic Brooklyn Stores Facade is Saved and Attached to a New Tower. Article by John Freeman Gill. And it's a story of the Abraham and Strauss building on Fulton Street in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And uh, the trick is here, it didn't have landmark status. Okay. Uh, It was, it's one of those uh, old cast iron uh, facade buildings uh, originally built in 1873. uh, And a lot of cast iron uh, buildings in Manhattan have landmark status, but not so many fewer in Brooklyn, apparently. But the owners, um, actually Macy's and uh, Tishman Spire, real estate developers, joined together to save this facade, okay? So that uh, even though it didn't have landmark status, um, which you know can sometimes be limiting, you have to have all kinds of approvals to what you can do with the building. Certain things have to be preserved, can't be changed. Here they had some license to do what they you know, wanted to do. And that was an enormous project just to save that cast iron facade. And uh, they took it apart bit by bit, sent it down to Alabama, to be conserved, to be you know, to have the lead paint stripped off, etc. Really? Also, some of the some of the bits were actually um, not cast iron; they were made of sheet metal or less durable things, and those were fabricated in newer, uh, more modern um, materials, easier to maintain, etc. To be fit in, then all the pieces were shipped back, and it was pieced together like a jigsaw puzzle onto the facade of this new building. Well, I mean. It's, uh, onto the facade of the building uh, that was added to, had added to this uh, nice big glass tower behind it. Wow. And how um, does that look? It, You know what? They don't have a great picture of the whole finished project. Yeah. So it was a little bit hard to tell. The individual pieces look pretty spectacular. Looks like a lot of fun. And uh, But here's another interesting thing. Yeah. Because inside is a Macy's. Okay. A&S was, of course, a department store. Right. And there's a whole great story of how this guy builds it. It's not a success. And then uh, somebody named Abraham buys it, who is later, you know, joined by Strauss, etc. So anyway, long story short, it's now a Macy's and uh, they don't want any windows on the front. So all the windows from the old facade are fake. Hmm. They are blank windows. Really? Um and uh, so anyway, it's uh, being repurposed and reused. Uh, 
with a great deal of respect to its heritage, but without the constraints of, uh, you know, preservation landmark status. All right. Well, that is interesting. It is interesting. It is. It because we've seen to some landscape. sad tales yeah. of woe. Well, of uh, buildings that uh, get kind of stuck in Nowheresville because of their... Well, it helps preserve New York. I mean, speaking of what makes New York, New York, there was an article in the Times called Small Stage Groups Play an Outsized Role about small theater groups. And, you know, we're involved with Classic Stage Company, which would be an example yeah, so of a small... Yeah, small theaters. Right. But here's <laughs> but an also article... also because we've had some just terrific experiences, at even small... recently, at small theaters. Well, they, you know, it turns out it's not just us. It turns out, according to this economic study that they did, and, you know, they have numbers. I don't know if they're worth $584 million dollars are contributed to the annual economic output in, in the city uh, by small theater. It, th- these numbers are made up. But, but the fact of the matter is that I do believe that it makes it's a big part of what New York is and makes New York unique. And that's certainly what they're saying in this study. Uh, they said there are, more, there are more than 280 theater organizations that have been established since 2011, small theaters. But there's turnover. More than 100 of them have closed. So they're constantly opening they're constantly closing. There are a number of these organizations. There, um, the city's home in a to total of 748 off-Broadway and off-Broadway theater organizations. 748, yeah. Responsible for 3,000 jobs. But they turn over. And the reason that they turn over, and they, what I mean by that is really they go out of business on a regular basis, is because they're non-economic at the end of the day. Mo- almost all of them are non-profit. And, of course, the Broadway theaters are for-profit. And more to the point, they make money. But uh, they're not for profit because you just can't, you, you're not going to, at that scale, make money. It's just not going to work. Now, the average theater size here is uh, 99 seats. Many of them are 99 and below. Uh, we know that uh, Classic States is 199. So in this group, they're in the larger group. But even so, uh, they, all these groups need support. All of them need charitable donations. That's well, the only way they continue. Are we talking, we're not talking about just Theaters, we're talking about theater groups, right? Theater and theater groups, that's right. Not everyone yeah. has a theater. Not everyone because, has a physical Because I building. will also say, Broadway theaters may be profitable. Yeah. But Broadway productions aren't always. Oh, no, well, that's for sure. You know what okay. they always say? You can't make a living, but you can make a killing. <laughs> which, which means that, uh, you know, you can, uh, it's not a regular thing. But every once in a while, you hit it. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's absolutely true. And the greatest example is, you know, Tootsie just announced that it was closing. Tootsie, by all... You know, we measures. It. Well, it got a great review. It did a lot of business. It was nominated for Tony. I think it might have gotten the Tony for Best Musical. I don't even remember at this point. Uh, and uh, but yet, uh, the investors aren't going to get their money back. And does are, does anybody understand why not? Why, why uh, you know why you people don't go to? There's no team? real answer to that. I mean, they did, but you, you, in order to re- the costs are so great. That in order to recoup that cost, you've got to be uh, filling that house. For a, a year and a half house. or two years. That's a huge house. They filled it for a year, and that's not enough. Oh, my God. Yeah. So right. it's a tough thing. But in any event, small, respect for small theaters. But again, uh, it says here, and I know this is true from personal experience, it's contributions that do it. That's the only way that does it. Uh, and, uh, and of course, the article concludes by encouraging people to make such contributions. But... Uh, uh, it shows you the role that they play, and it, it plays. It, it enriches the cultural life. There are many more productions than there would otherwise be. You and I have had great experiences at small yeah. theaters, and it also says that actors flock to New York because they have the opportunity, on the one hand, appear in these small productions and what I'll call, you know, higher level plays. Let's say, on the one hand, even as they're doing television or other kind of work, 
that's done in New York at the same time, and it makes it a wonderful venue for actors. Well, there are a couple of different things. Yeah. One is um, it's important to give, you know, it. they are looking for contributions, right? right. But the other thing is uh, most of these theaters are helped a great deal by subscriptions. Right. So buy a subscription. Right. Okay. It costs much less to go to these productions than it does to go to Broadway shows. Well, that's look, okay? you know, and yeah, yeah. Uh, by being a subscriber, yeah. you give them a base. It helps them a lot. It encourages you to go. You have to go whether you you're thinking about it or not. Uh, you're galvanized into going. Well, you know, but um, even it's not. It sounds like we're saying they're looking for a handout. The fact of the matter is, you would folks ought to look at small theater and off theater productions rather than just look at what's playing on Broadway. I mean, if if you're if your you know perspective is narrow to I'm going to see a play on Broadway, you're saying I'm going to pay 150 dollars plus, and I got to choose from these 15 shows. But the truth is, there's always uh, many, many more shows in New York, many worth seeing, many less expensive, right? And they the, can use the your support. The problem is, uh, people are not going to the theater. Well, I, I, look, I'm going I, to the theater less. You still have a lot of young th- people and it, are not but, going. But the article, young people, again, they're not buying houses. houses. The, bottom the, the bottom line of the article, the bottom line of the article is there are a lot of these theaters that are succeeding. Okay, there not everyone's going out of business. That's not the headline. The headline is that there are a lot of that are successful, but they continue to require people's support. So I stand by my line. Well, you might stand young by. People are not going to the theater. But I'm I, sitting in the theater. I, I don't see any young people. But I think they're more. They're going more to the off-Broadway theaters than to the Broadway theaters. I think if you're in an off-Broadway theater. Because of the pricing, because it might be more offbeat, uh, you're seeing younger people there. Than in the all right. Th- I will look more carefully yes, all right. next time. Yes. All right. So now you wanted to talk about... Well, e-bikes. There's nothing to you're say. You're on this e-bike kit. No, no, no. Look, I to me, say, it's actually interesting. Why don't you just give up and buy a darn it, it e-bike? It combines the two favorite subjects. You talk subjects. about it every week. I want you to buy an e-bike, and then I'll see how it works out. Uh, <laughs> what's interesting to me is... I have the, a great bike. Yes. You have no good bike. Get yourself an e-bike. Well, the thing about it, there was an article about exercise and e-bikes, and uh, they did some study. Who knows? But there was a study about some mountain bikers. They measured the, how many calories they were burning or what their weight loss over a period, however they wanted to do it. The fact of the matter is they found that folks who were on an e-bike doing mountain biking versus folks or on a regular bicycle mountain biking, engaged in a similar amount of okay. exercise. Folks don't ride mountain bikes. Well, Fo- don't go mountain the, biking. The study okay? was about mountain bikers. I, I can't help you. Kids on e-mountain bikes, yeah. you know, got as much as exercise right. as kids uh, right. on regular well, so mountain kids. bikes. Kids okay? are folks. But the, the, the point, it's an interesting thing. They're trying to sort of defeat the stigma that if you're on an in-bike, you're just going for a cruise. No, 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 no. This is not it at all. What is this it? Is, this is what you call great PR. Huh? So, you know, the e-bike people you know, have zeroed in on how to um, make their name. Let me tell you. They, they've got... Article after uh, article uh, saying e-bikes are good, e-bikes are good, e-bikes are good. I'm not against e-bikes. As a matter of fact, to me, the ideal e-bike, and you know, you never know when to jump in because the batteries keep getting smaller and stuff like that. The ideal e-bike will be one just rides like a normal bicycle, but push comes to shove, you're in a tough spot, uh, you can always kick in the e-bike. You can right. always quicken the engine. Then. What is our biggest fear about the e-bike? It's heavier. No. What? What is it? I think the biggest fear is... Uh, There'll be some mechanical problem that we oh, can't no, solve. Oh, no, no. No, I don't think so. You know? No, no, no. Oh, come on. No, it's heavy. In, in other words, you want to make sure it rides like a bicycle when you don't have it engaged. No, I want to make sure it rides. I, I, don't, I don't think that's a mechanical issue. 
Okay, it, sounds, it just sounds like a more complicated no, thing. No, I don't think so. All right, so here's an article you were dying not to do. Yeah, exactly and, right. Uh, that is, uh, is from have, the New York Times. Between, I have standards. That's the difference between us. And uh, <laughs> let me get the let me get the title here. It's a great uh, it's a great title. When snakes had use for a pair of legs. This is you might remember this. I don't remember this happening. No, no. I don't actually remember this. Apparently, a hundred a hundred million years ago, yeah. um, snakes had two. Legs. Yeah. Okay. This is an article by Becky Ferreira in uh, the New York Times. And uh, a, a fossil was recently found in Argentina where you can see a snake um, has remnants right. of two hind legs. Mm. And uh, the article goes on to say, well, of course, everybody realizes that, you know, uh, before that, snakes had four legs. I didn't realize that. I didn't know snakes had four legs. Well, they said everybody, they're using everybody loosely, but yes. Uh, apparently, yeah. you know, they're well known. Um, 170 million years ago, yeah. apparently snakes had four legs. Mm. And then 100, uh, you know, a- anyway, uh, then it talks about how snakes have been very successful as limbless um, they've done creatures. A he- they've done a heck of a they job. They operate pretty well. I don't think well. anyone can complain about the performance of snakes without any legs at all. I think they're, they're to be commended. Um, and they do have uh, kind of an artist's reconstruction of what a snake with two legs looks like. I can just imagine. So this, this is an article to, you know, people might find interesting unless everybody else is just uh, way ahead of me on the snake curve yeah. and already knows all this. No, no, not me. All right, so you found something. Some you found gold for television watching. Television gold. Um, yeah. So in the New York Times, there's a little article that I just see occasionally, and uh, it uh, gives people a chance to write in and say, "I like this." Uh, you know, what can I watch that's like this? Right. Meaning, basically TV. Meaning right. on the small screen from Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever service. And one person had written in saying, you know, I was late to jump on the Downton Abbey boat, but I did. I binged, watched it all. Now what do I do? (laughs) And the suggestion was you've got to watch what they called Spanish historical dramas. Yeah, never heard of that. (laughs) Available on Netflix. Yeah. And here are the ones they recommend. I'm getting my pencil. Hold on. Now, these are in Spanish, okay? But I guess they have uh, subtitles or whatever. Let's Uh, hope so. Maybe they're dubbed. I don't don't even know. But, I mean, we have members of our family who would uh, understand the Spanish. So, not a problem for them. But here's one. Cable Girls takes place... In 1928, in Madrid, mm. and it's about um, you know uh, phone operators. Phone, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, switchboard, switchboard, switchboard operators. Oh. Oh. Okay, then there's one, the time in between, it takes place in the 1930s, and uh, it's about the you know the escapades, ins and outs, love affairs, I guess, of uh, a bunch of seamstresses. Mm. I mean, that sounds. It sounds like it has potential. Look, it might be okay. Young girls dealing with each other. It does yeah, seem a little yeah. obscure. There seems to be a lot of regular English-speaking television available, but fine. I mean, it uh, wasn't uh, a likely... And then there's something called yeah. Velvet yeah. taking place in the 1950s in a department store. 
you know, a little bit of, you know, uh, Mrs. Maisel. Yeah. Uh, so well, which one do you want to watch tonight? Just tell me. We'll, we'll dial it up. I don't know. Velvet. I, I, I think I could, Velvet. I could go for all of them, actually. Uh, uh, it, it might be fun. This, sure. I'm not I against mean, it. I'm not against it. Or we can just binge. I mean, up. these are not these are these are in the style of Downton Abbey. These are not the over the top, you know, Spanish language soap opera things. Listen, I already think of Downton Abbey as in a foreign language. So the notion that this is going to be in a foreign language doesn't put me off. Right. So we we really have to uh, wrap this up because uh, Thanksgiving is looming. Looming. And the, there are preparations that need to be done. You know. Uh, ravenous hordes will soon descend on this household, right? And uh, we need to be prepared. And now there were a lot of ways to solve that problem. There's I saw a fun article in the New York Times about people having Chinese restaurants roast their turkey, and apparently this has been going on for years mm. since the seventies. Since all the, over, I, I think it's a since snakes. Place. Since snakes had legs is the answer. No, right? not quite that uh, yeah. long. I mean, it, it people do it in Seattle, San Francisco, New York City. Well, they they, they explain why. They explain yes. why. Well, you it, tell tell me why. Well, the the, the reason is that uh, folks who were from China who were in the U.S. who worked for various organizations would get holiday turkeys from their employer uh, for Thanksgiving. And they wouldn't know what to do with them, in particular because apparently in Chinese culture, you don't cook in the oven or with right. stovetop. So you get a turkey. What am I doing with this? Yeah. <laughs> and the answer is you go to the, your local restaurant and you say, help me out, will you? So various restaurants have perfect, perfected a methodology yeah. uh, based on, you know, like uh, cooking the duck. Right. Uh, Peking duck kind of idea, I guess, um, which involves cleaning it. Brining it, they do some kind of wet brine. They don't stuff uh, like stuffing, like mm. bread stuffing inside. It tends to be kind of a wet, juicy kind of combination of things like onions, garlic, mm. uh, spices, etc. And uh, they hang the turkeys to dry mm-hmm. so that you get this fabulous crisp skin and when you roast it. And um, it, you know, apparently. It's a much more moist, fabulous uh, result than uh, the conventional American-style uh, turkey roasting right, in the well, oven thing. Uh, so, so by now they have fewer and fewer Chinese American patrons and more, um, you know, uh, American American. Uh, and yet, I know patrons. this is not the way you're going. I know that you are going to be. I w- you know, I would love to do that. It wouldn't bother me at all yeah. to have somebody else take care of that. But many of these places, you have to sign up far in advance, right. and they only have a limited capacity. Uh, some of the restaurants say it's a nightmare, it's a headache, but it gives everybody so much joy. We like to do it. Well, they're not in our area anyway. I mean, they look like Queens and. Uh, well, we don't know. If yeah. we could sniff around, maybe there's uh, somebody who would do it but uh so that was kind of fun and uh, you know so i am looking forward to thanksgiving i think thanksgiving is as sadie likes to say our super bowl (laughs) Uh, we we love thanksgiving we i've always thought it was a great holiday um you know centered around great food and being grateful yeah and uh, actually on the on the um npr they had a whole um stint about uh um you know, various aspects of, you know, the science of Thanksgiving. And one of the things they covered was the concept of being grateful. Turns out to be grateful 
is actually good for your health. Hmm. Well, all right. And uh, so, I, you know, you sound pretty skeptical. No, but I anyway, mean, I think uh, I, you know, I, I'll I put it up there with e-bikes. There's yeah. more and more that yeah. I, I feel like our forefathers understood about how to live well involved doing certain things and they invented holidays that actually make us do some things well, that are good for let us. Me, let me put a little like spin. Getting together I, with me, family. Yeah, let me put a spin on that. I would say that uh, a lot of people did a lot of things. Our forefathers included some good, some were ba- bad, but the things that survive or the things that have value. How's, how's that? Right. Okay. But it wasn't just about getting fat on uh, no. pie. No, 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 no. It was about getting family together and yeah. uh, taking a moment to realize what's good about your life. It's also, you know what, uh, I've been uh, very grateful. It, it seems like, even though it's been a dry, weird fall, it's been very beautiful. You know, I do a lot of driving because of my long commutes, and I've just been enjoying the beauty of everything. Um, but the other thing I used to do around this time of year, Thanksgiving, on my commute, is listen to the Radio Turkey hotlines. Mm. And I highly miss those. There used to be a Martha Stewart radio station, and she would uh, uh, line up all these famous chefs that you could call and say, look, this is my problem. What do I do? And uh, people had all manner of problems. This would be both Wednesday and Thursday? or I don't know. I, I feel like it would be Tuesday, Wednesday, uh-huh. you know. Um, it would be day after day. And, of course, uh, five out of ten people are calling to ask for a new brine recipe. Oh, yeah, they're all asking the same question. Uh, There's know, no question. Yeah. Incredibly boring. And right. the chefs are like, oh, oh boy. <laughs> you know? um, but it was really fun. It was a, a way of sort of connecting over the airwaves. Uh, with other people going through the same hubbub you're going through. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I enjoyed that, and I miss those kind of shows. I mean, we really, on the radio, mostly hear just the politics, right. et cetera. I well, miss those radio talk so that's shows. That's in part what we're doing here, you know, sort of chatting about stuff that's other than, you know, the political stuff. And right. More human so interest stuff. So next stop. Well, the next week, we're going to get the report on our actual Thanksgiving. I mean, uh, how it really goes down. Really? There. Yes. Really? You're going to make me relive that? And and uh, yeah. possibly... Let's just say there, pod- are, there are often um, sutures involved. <laughs> during, you don't have to tell us about that. In my celebration You don't have to tell us okay. everything. But uh, we might have... My a, lips are sealed. We might have quite a few guests in that podcast. Because uh, your family is going to be here. And, you know, they're all natural entertainers. Or we'll be too busy for a podcast. That, there's, there's that possibility that. also. All right. All Until right. then... Yes. Have a happy Thanksgiving. To everyone from Tamsin and Dan, I'm Tamsin. And Dan Apuha. With Tamsin and Dan, Dan, read read the the paper. paper. Adios.